Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew, having come to a most pivotal portion of the disciples' journey. Seems that for two and a half years, Jesus had been moving to this moment, teaching and reteaching, affirming and reaffirming, demonstrating and re-demonstrating the truth of who he was. On display, oftentimes for the masses, but aimed more directly at the twelve, that they would see, hear, and understand the lights of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus needed these apostles to know with certainty and proclaim with conviction if they were ever going to carry forth his gospel message. So he called them away from the crowd to the region of Caesarea Philippi to answer questions about his nature, his person, and his identity. The first question posed to disciples surveyed the thoughts of the crowd. Who do people, in general, say that I am? Well, as is the case today, opinions about Jesus then differed greatly. Some thought he was John the Baptist, that great teacher of repentance whose voice rang out to the nation of Israel from the Judean wilderness. Others saw him as the forerunner Elijah, sent to prepare the way of the Christ. Still others believed that he was Jeremiah, back on the scene to restore the ark and the altar to their proper place in the temple. And still others suggested that Jesus was one of God's other prophets who taught with divine authority and called Israel to account. These responses seemed reasonable enough to those offering their opinion in the middle part of the first century. But because none of them speaks to his sovereignty or his deity, these answers fall woefully and damnably short. See, it's not enough to recognize something supernatural in Jesus. It's not enough to associate him with other voices that we hear in Scripture. It's not enough to see him as a wise teacher, a moral example, or a godly man. That's what people want to do with Jesus today. And still it misses the mark entirely. Because despite how nice and pleasant those things might sound on the surface, they fail to acknowledge him as the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ of God, to whom we owe our unqualified allegiance. Very few men will ever get beyond what lies at the surface to that life-changing truth. Now, we know that to be true of the masses in general. But what about the apostles themselves? 
What do they say about the identity of Jesus? Well, that was the second question that Jesus asked them in Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? Well, friends, this is the question that separates Orthodox Christianity from every outside cult. This is the question that separates the true believer from those who are on the fringes. This is the question which holds the keys to life, death, and all eternity. So Peter, speaking both individually and as a representative of this apostolic group, answers directly and precisely. He says, you are the Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. The Christ of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 20. Or as his answer appears here in Matthew, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For the first time in their walk of faith, the disciples finally acknowledged what Matthew set out all this time to prove. That as he states in the introduction to his gospel, Jesus is in fact the Messiah or Christos, same word, sent by God to save. And now that they know that, Peter and the apostles, and now that God has revealed the truth of Christ to their hearts, they are primed, poised, and readied to lay the foundation of his church. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. In addition to being one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament, Matthew 16, verse 18, also contains the first appearance of this word, church. In fact, in all of the Gospels, and all of the gospel writers. Matthew is the only one to use this Greek word, ecclesia. And he only does so on two occasions. Here and in his description of church discipline in chapter 18. 
refers to the assembly of God's people who are individually and as a group called out from the ills of secularism for the purpose of holiness, righteousness, and sanctification. And that's what it means to be the church. But why is Jesus discussing its merits here? I mean, the New Testament church hadn't even been birthed at this point. It has no officers, no members, no bylaws, Lord help us. Is this really the time to lay out all of its particulars? Well, yes. This is the perfect time. For Jesus to set forth his vision of the church before people go and mess it up. What's the church supposed to be according to its founder? What are its key tenets? How's it supposed to work? At the very first mention of the word in all of the gospels, Jesus answers these questions about the ecclesia by insisting upon four non-negotiable truths. Though they appear in a slightly different order in our text, we will begin with that truth which is most essential. That no matter who claims to have ownership of her, the church belongs to Christ. Take a look back at his words in verse 18 with emphasis added. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Before we divest and diverge into secondary matters here this morning, we must understand and appreciate this statement first. Because if we get this one wrong, which most in the modern church do, if we get this one wrong, then we are destined for failure in every possible regard. This is Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. No, This thing belongs exclusively to the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not to minimize the role that the apostles would play at its outset or the function of those leading in the church today. But none of them have this possessory interest because none of them were appointed head of the church by God the Father. As Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, God put all things in subjection under his, that is under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Over the years, I have heard countless people try to stake their claim of ownership. Declaring in no uncertain terms, this is my church. No, it's not. 
You may attend here. You may tithe here. You may serve here. You may have invested a great deal over the years relationally in this place. But make no mistake, friends. It belongs to another. Because God decreed it and because Christ bought it. As the elders in Ephesus were told in Acts chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He, specifically the Son, purchased with His own blood. Now, it seems to me, when you buy something, it's yours. I mean, others can enjoy it. Others can partake of it. Others can even oversee its operations, as these men in Ephesus were called to do. But there is a huge, monumental difference between owning and overseeing. And missing or mischaracterizing that distinction has caused any number of Sunday morning organizations to go awry. Friends, it is not ours to do with as we please. It's His. And so let us be sure, in whatever takes place in this church, that its owner, Christ Jesus, gets the preeminence. Are you there? And the very outset of this ecclesia thing, Jesus lays out these four non-negotiable truths. First, that the church belongs to Christ. And second, that he builds it. Take a look at Jesus' words in verse 18 again, this time with a slightly different emphasis. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, I cannot tell you how many times over the years some well-meaning congregant or community member has asked me this question. How do you plan to build your church? Well, I don't. I can't. I wouldn't be so bold as to even try. (laughs) First of all, it's not my church, which we have just discovered. But even if we can get beyond that misnomer, well, this other gross misconception still remains. The notion that men, like you or I, cause its increase. That's not what Jesus indicates here. Nor is it what we see played out in the pages of Scripture. In the earliest days of the Ecclesia, Luke tells us that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, the redeemed were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord 
was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And Paul acknowledges the same thing when talking to the church in Corinth. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then he says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Well, the only one who is anything is God who causes the growth. Sure, the Lord employs men in his service. He calls them to faithfully preach his word. But at the end of the day, friends, God, specifically his son Jesus, is the owner. He's the architect. And he is the one who builds. Most in the church today either don't believe that to be true or don't have the patience to see it realized. So they wrestle the reins away from Christ and build a similar but substitute organization of their own design. With all the innovation and manipulation of a finely tuned marketing machine. Now I say that as one who graduated with that very degree. I was a marketing major. And in my former life, I have entertained multi-million dollar clients. I've ran national advertising campaigns. I've produced more glossy material than I can dare to think of. But that's how you build secular companies. That's not how Christ builds his church. No, marketing campaigns, and coffee bars, and super cool kids programs. Those things might add to the number of people in the room, I'll grant you. But they do not build the church. That is the work of Christ and Christ alone. Because coming into the church for real requires a wholesale transformation of the sinner's heart. Something that you and I are completely incapable of producing. No matter how creative or entertaining our presentation might be. Now we can plant and we can water, but only the Lord himself has the ability to affect change in the innermost portion. And as such, only the Lord himself can add to the membership of his true church. Oh, but praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah. He promises to do so. I mean, that's what he says here to Peter. I will build my church. Not I could and not I might. I will. Which means no matter how oppressive and hopeless our circumstances may seem, no matter how liberal, material, or apostate its outward adherence may become, 
no matter how damnably decadent the rest of this world, the true church will continue to grow and prosper from this day forth and forever. Friends, that's as good as done because Christ promised it. Christ decreed it. Christ declared it to be so. Yeah? Before the church was even birthed, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus laid out these four prevailing principles. That church belongs to Christ and he builds it on the foundation laid by Peter and the apostles. Again, we go back to Jesus' assertion in verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Now this is where the real controversy of the text is found. In the ongoing debate about Petros and the Petra. Those are the two Greek words used in this statement. Purposefully related to one another to make a point. But what is that point exactly? Well, if you were of a Roman Catholic persuasion, you would see in these words an official, perpetual, Christ-established role for Peter as the Pope of the church. After all, if Petros is the Petra, if Peter is the rock, then his words must be infallible, his authority must be exclusive, and his successors must be deified. That is the Roman Catholic position. Using Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 in particular, as scriptural support. But this verse says nothing at all about infallibility, about authority, or about succession. So, to combat these errors of Catholicism, the Protestants categorically reject this notion that Peter is the rock to whom Jesus was referring in favor of alternate interpretations. Say, no, Jesus wasn't singling out Peter or the apostles. He was talking about the confession that they just made. Upon this rock of revealed truth, I will build my church. Or, we dismiss this conversation altogether. Say, the rock can be none other than Christ himself because, well, when in doubt, the answer is always Jesus. Yeah? Is it possible that we have allowed the extremes of the Roman Catholic viewpoint to sway our approach to this text? And we don't like where their interpretation might lead us. And so we have invented one of our own. Well, that's not how one performs sound biblical hermeneutics. Doesn't really matter 
what the Catholics say about this issue, or the Protestants. The question is, what did Jesus mean when looking directly into the eyes of Peter, he speaks these words? And the wordplay is a little hard to get around here, friends. Especially when you consider the fact that prior to this occasion, the man's name wasn't Petros at all. It was Simon. But in order to spell out his relationship to the church, Jesus changes his name to something that sounds a whole lot like the Greek word for rock. Even those who cite Jesus' spoken language are forced to acknowledge that there is a relationship to be had here. I mean, there, Peter's name and the rock would have been completely identical, both from the Aramaic word kippa. So why would Christ go out of his way to change this man's name and make its association this obvious if not to establish Peter primarily and the apostles secondarily as integral parts of the church's foundation? Friends, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Not propping Peter up as the head of his church. That role is already taken. No, he's actually placing Peter beneath the church to strengthen, support, and undergird. Now, why do I say Peter primarily and the apostles secondarily? Well, because Peter was the one having this conversation with Jesus. And because in those early days of the church, Peter is the one who played the part. Was Peter not the first to be called? The first to confess? The first to reach Jews and the first to convert Gentiles? All throughout the apostolic era, Peter served as the primus inter peris, the first among equals. And that is why Jesus uses his name in particular when referring to the apostles' role as the core, the bedrock, the foundation of Christ's church. That's what Jesus was saying here. And that's what the Bible affirms elsewhere. That the redeemed are no longer strangers and aliens, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Uh, God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that foundation in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. Christ Jesus is its cornerstone. 
rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, because as the cornerstone, he keeps everything in proper alignment with a right course and a true heading. Affirming that doesn't disparage Christ. Nor does it overly exalt Peter. No, it rightly acknowledges what the scriptures say about the foundational elements of the church. We know without Jesus, the whole thing is disheveled, it's disoriented, it's in complete and total disarray. We realize that. But without the apostles and their teaching, there wouldn't be anything for the church to build upon. That's why the church of the New Testament dedicated herself so steadfastly to the apostles' instruction. In fact, immediately following Peter's first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, that's precisely what we find the church doing. Now, when they heard this, a preaching of the gospel, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone in that newly formed first church kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Uncomfortable as it may be for those who were taught differently on this subject, Peter and the apostles are the church's foundation. Not Christ exclusive all others, though we sing that in our songs, but the apostles. Which is why at the end of all things, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we're told that the wall of the new and glorified city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Their teaching tells us that they are foundational in the church. And so does the authority that they had just been given. I mean, that's what Jesus is bestowing upon Peter and the apostles in verse 19 of our text. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
The keys are those instruments that lock or unlock areas of restricted access. And we know the kingdom of heaven to be just such a place. Open to some and shut to others. And we have proclaimed boldly to the world that Jesus holds the key. But it's not quite that simple. There is this little nuance that Jesus himself just acknowledged in our text. For here we see Christ handing the keys of the kingdom to others. Giving Peter and the apostles the authority to allow or deny entrance into his church. Now, not to do so arbitrarily, of course, nor according to their own personal preference, but to the extent that men receive or reject their Christ-endorsed message of salvation. You see, to receive the apostolos was to receive Jesus himself. And the same was said of man's rejection. We see that spelled out in John chapter 20. Jesus says to this same apostolic group, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says this, If you forgive the sins of any, Jesus saying this to the apostles, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It would seem that those who go in Christ's name with his message as his representatives, they hold the keys to life, death, and the kingdom of heaven. If people respond to their message, repent and believe in what they have said, well, those people can be assured that God has granted them forgiveness. But should men refuse their preaching, true apostolic preaching, should men reject that and turn away? Then their fate is sealed. And they can be sure God will not be offering them a pardon. Now there is much more to say on this issue. And we'll get into more of the particulars in our study of Matthew chapter 18. But in short, we must recognize here that the foundational truths of the ecclesia and the authority to govern her affairs rest in the hands of these 12 apostles to whom we owe an enormous debt of gratitude. Yeah? The church belongs 
Christ. He builds it on the foundation laid by Peter and the apostles. And it will forever stand. Take a look one more time at verse 18. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, in this context, the gates of Hades has been taken to represent the strength of Satan and all his cohorts. And we can rest assured that because Christ is the church's owner-builder, that it cannot be defeated by all the hosts of darkness put together. And that should give us great confidence for the future because it is undeniably true. And yet, there may be something even more comforting in Jesus' pronouncement. It has to do with this phrase, gates of Hades. If you are like me, well, you've always found that wording just a bit odd. After all, gates don't come after you. Gates don't attack you. Gates don't move in any direction at all. So why would Jesus reference gates when talking about the church's ability to withstand all of the opposition coming at it from the outside? Well, it turns out the gates of Hades and other similar expressions are found all throughout ancient literature, Jewish and pagan alike. Not used to picture a literal iron-wrought gate that stands at the entrance to Sheol. But as a euphemism for the powers of death. Hence the translation of this verse in the RSV. That is the Revised Standard Version. Where Jesus says, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Won't you say, because the church is the assembly of born-again, resurrected people, the church itself can never die. No, not even death, the last enemy, as it is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Not even death will be able to overcome the church of Jesus Christ. Because death is no longer master over him, death is no longer master over his beloved. Are you there? Friends, in days that are dark and dreary, when everything in the world seems to stand in opposition to the church, these things we know to be true. And to these things, we must cling. No matter what it might look like, no matter who might come on the attack, the church belongs to Christ. He will build it on the foundation laid by Peter and the apostles. And it will forever stand. 
Praise God. Glory, glory, and hallelujah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Before men with their own inventions and their own ideas and their own slants and twists on things, before any of that could take place, you've told us these non-negotiable truths about your church. Oh, and it is yours, Lord. We take absolutely no possessory interest in her. It is yours. And as such, we do your bidding in this place. We do your bidding in our lives. Lord, we're thankful for the promise contained herein. We don't have to be inventive and creative to add to our number because that's what you do in your time, in your way, in a way that only you can by transforming hearts, turning them from hearts of flesh to hearts filled with your spirit. Lord, I just pray. I pray that we wouldn't get in your way as you do that, but that we would honor you. We acknowledge you rightly in this place, that you would always receive the preeminence, you and your son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can draw, knowing that all the attacks that come from evil, even death when it comes, it doesn't thwart your plan or purpose. It does nothing to diminish your church. For that, we are eternally grateful. Continue to be exalted in this place and in our lives, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.